Welcome to the South Carolina Department of Mental Health's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion podcast series, A History of SCDMH, Diversity and Representation Throughout the Years, Episode 3. to our ongoing April 2023 Diversity Month celebration, a history of SCDMH, diversity and representation throughout the years. Today, we will be focusing on the 1970s and the 1980s, expansion of community mental health services and downsizing the hospitals. During the last podcast, Mark Binkley, DMH's executive project manager and unofficial historian, who is with us again today, described the notable events and developments that impacted the state hospital and DMH during the department's next 50 years, from the 1920s to the early 1970s, the role of the civil rights movement played in DMH's history and how Majesca Simpkins fought for equity for people of color for both patients and employees. So today, Mark is going to talk about the 1970s and the 1980s. Mark, community mental health services were expanded during the 1970s and the 1980s. Was this a reflection of change in South Carolina demographics? Thanks, Janet, and I'm glad to be back with you. And I, I do think the uh, expansion of uh, community mental health services uh, was basically driven uh, on the one hand by, by money, uh, on the other hand by improvements in psychiatric medications. There was, it was a real revolution going on in the 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, in the pharmaceutical arena when it came to psychiatric medications. It seemed like every year uh, new medications were coming on the market that addressed some of the uh, uh, symptoms of mental illness in an in a increasingly uh, better way, um, which enabled a lot of folks, a lot of the patients in our state hospitals who uh, previously uh, had a level of impairment from their illness uh, that there was really uh, very little likelihood that they would be able to function in a community setting. And with these medications, suddenly uh, their symptoms were, were much reduced and, uh, and uh, hope was, was uh, uh, very high that, in fact, they could be successfully uh, treated in a, in a community setting. Uh, and then there was a lot of uh, legal change, and a lot of the legal change was arising basically out of the inspiration of the civil rights movement. Um, so I, I, I did have kind of a uh, semi-amusing way to describe the growth of community mental health services in America, really, but in South Carolina as well, uh, kind of playing on the uh, lawyers, drugs, and money uh, uh, theme and 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 lawyers I, I put number one and, and medications I put number two but really it was the third uh, prong money that really I think uh, caused the community mental health movement to expand 
and also inspired states to take advantage of uh, of improvements in uh, community treatment and, and, and improvements in medication to uh, try to save money by, uh, by downsizing the census in their state hospitals. But I'll kind of bring that back to specifically uh, the federal programs. As, as I talked about last time in the 1960s, um, again, South Carolina was ahead of the curve in creating community mental health centers but the, the federal government came on the scene in 1963 with grants to build mental health centers, federal construction grants to build community mental health centers, and also uh, operational grants, uh, federal operational grants to fund community mental health centers. And in, in South Carolina, even though we already had a number of state supported and locally supported community mental health centers, uh, our mental health centers in South Carolina quickly took advantage of those federal funds to improve their facilities and to expand uh, the number of uh, employees uh, and the number of people that could be treated by, by taking advantage of those operational grants. But it was really uh, another federal uh, program, the amendments to the Social Security Act in 1965, which was part of Lyndon Johnson and the Democrats' uh, Great Society a push to try to eliminate the war on, it was called the war on poverty, to try to eliminate poverty, uh, which as we all know it didn't do, but but which made great strides in uh, relieving a lot of the worst effects of poverty. And one of those uh, major pieces of legislation uh, were the amendments to the Social Security Act, which created Medicaid and Medicare, and also which created for the first time uh, the Supplemental Security Income uh, Program, where individuals who had never worked, who were disabled, uh, and the severity of their dis disabilities didn't allow them to have ever worked, uh, qualified for a monthly amount of money, which at least back in the 60s and early 70s was sufficient uh, at the time, based on housing costs and the cost of uh, the cost of food uh, basically was set at an amount that would enable somebody to pay their room and board. So we had the Medicaid program to pay for uh, community mental health services. Uh, one of the interesting things about Medicaid is that it won't pay for inpatient services in a state hospital uh, if you're between the ages of 22 and 64. However, it will pay uh, for community mental health services if you're between the ages of 64, uh, excuse me, 22 and 64, and you're disabled and qualify for Medicaid. So, so we had uh, Medicaid able to pay for medications and uh, doctor visits and therapist visits, and we had supplemental security income, which was uh, sufficient to pay for room and board. And so a lot of state legislators and a lot of state mental health administrators around the country uh, really started to believe that if they expanded their community mental health centers and got their patients in their state hospitals qualified for Medicaid and SSI, they could uh, discharge those patients and those patients would be well cared for in a community setting. Um, South Carolina was not early to, uh, did not embrace that same philosophy early on. Uh, our state hospitals 
stayed quite large, uh, really mostly through the 70s. Um, we were slow to uh, take advantage of uh, discharging patients to the community, but at the same time, uh, we did, South Carolina did uh, expand its mental health centers uh, and did take advantage for those patients who's, who responded well to medication. Uh, the, 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 the state hospitals sort of gradually became smaller. It was really uh, in 1985 with the arrival of uh, Joe Bevilacqua as a new commissioner uh, at, at the Department of Mental Health, who had been a commissioner in Rhode Island, who had been a state commissioner in Virginia, and who'd really seen uh, what were the possibilities of uh, community mental health services to really kind of lead the charge to deinstitutionalize and downsize our state hospitals here in South Carolina, and at the same time, uh, make sure that those patients who were discharged uh, got the necessary care and supports. One of the problems in the other states that had rapidly deinstitutionalized their state hospitals is they did it on the theory that if, they, if there were community mental health centers and if the patients had Medicaid and if the patients were qualified for SSI, they would go to the mental health centers, they would find suitable housing, and they would take their medicine. And as we unfortunately learned uh, in other states, uh, that rapid deinstitutionalization for those patients turned out to, in many cases, to be a disaster for the patients. Um, a lot of the patients who had been chronic long-term patients of state hospitals, even with uh, Medicaid, even with SSI, even with the availability of a mental health center, were simply too impaired or too inexperienced uh, to connect the dots and get the care they needed. And, uh, and back in those days, uh, the idea of outreach from a mental health center where, where you'd actually uh, have people whose job it was uh, to meet the patients where they were, which is something we do today, uh, that was not uh, part of the uh, the uh, services offered by community mental health centers back in the 70s and 80s. So uh, one of the great things that South Carolina did, even though we were slow to adopt the institutionalization, is when we adopted it, we had already learned lessons of what not to do in other states. And the way that South Carolina went about uh, deinstitutionalizing its long-term patients from State Hospital in Crass Farrow was through a program which was called Towards Local Care, TLC. And it actually uh, tracked the patients individually uh, once they left the hospital. The mental health center that was gonna care for that patient actually received funding, uh, in additional funding to their budget uh, specific for the care of those patients that they were going to receive from the state hospital. And so they were motivated uh, to uh, uh, keep the patients in care and find the necessary supports, whether that was housing uh, or uh, outreach type of treatment, so that those patients uh, would not wind up homeless, would not wind up back in an emergency department, would not wind up uh, reinstitutionalized. And management tracked those patients. So the mental health centers, once they accepted a patient from the state hospital, uh, there was somebody going to be calling that mental health center to check on the patient and how they were getting along. And we 
actually had reports on a regular basis about the number of patients who had to come back into a institutional setting. And it was really quite low. Uh, very few patients who were discharged under the TLC program wound up back in the state hospital. And it was really because of the planful way that the department went about uh, discharging uh, and downsizing, uh, uh, particularly the census of its longer term patients at state hospital and Crafts Farrow. Uh, I don't wanna leave out the legal changes that occurred during the 70s, however. Almost every state law, almost every state in the country, including South Carolina, changed their commitment laws as a result of those uh, uh, lawyers who had learned their lesson uh, through the civil rights movement and who came to view uh, mental health patients as, as yet another minority who had been discriminated against, uh, they began bringing lawsuits and also advocating for legislation in the various state legislatures to reform commitment laws to make it more difficult uh, for people to be involuntarily committed unless they were uh, posing a risk of harm to themselves or others. So South Carolina was one of those states that updated its commitment law in 1974. Uh, I, I think between 1970 and 1980, something like 39 states revised their uh, commitment laws. So it was a, a big national movement that South Carolina was certainly part of to modernize uh, their commitment laws to uh, better reflect a kind of due process, uh, adequate court proceeding uh, prior to involuntary commitment. And that did have an effect in South Carolina and other states, just in terms of the number of people who qualified or who got initially hospitalized at, at, at state hospitals. So, uh, that the, the numbers coming into the hospital were less and the numbers going out, out were greater. So I was curious as I was listening to you talk, um, by this time hospitals were desegregated. So did the expansion of community health services impact the care for patients of color, color in positive ways also? Do we- yeah, I believe they did. Um, I think, uh, while South Carolina was uh, very uh, reluctant and grudging like most of the Southern states in terms of providing equal uh, facilities and equal treatment uh, for, for patients of color and equal pay uh, for, for uh, staff of color, uh, by the 70s, um, and particularly by the 70s with the, uh, how far the civil rights movement had advanced, um, whether it was whether it was always uh, uh, on the on the front end of things or not, I think uh, equality was was the general rule in in both uh, both of our large state hospitals. And and Bryan Psychiatric Hospital opened in 1974, um, and it was fully integrated, uh, both staff and and patients. And so uh, when it came to uh, when it came to deinstitutionalization, um, I don't think there was any uh, uh, reluctance or discrimination uh, in terms of the, the community services that were afforded to patients of color. I think uh, basically if, if somebody was seen as a 
candidate for discharge because uh, the medications were, were, were effective, their symptoms were relatively controlled. Um, uh, they, were, they were essentially assisted to the same degree as, as white patients. As we'll see next time in the next, uh, uh, next session, when we talk about uh, cultural competency, and we talk about uh, sort of how South Carolina was one of the leaders in recognizing that depending on a patient's culture, uh, the treatment staff needed to be sensitive to uh, issues related to their culture in order to provide adequate treatment. Um, I think you'll see that even, even in the next decade, the 90s, South Carolina was, was among the first states to recognize uh, that patients of color and patients from different backgrounds uh, there had a had a definite culture that impacted uh, the way that they uh, responded to treatment, the way that uh, you could engage them in treatment and and what would be effective in terms of treatment. So um, we'll talk about that later, but I think at least when we're talking about the 70s and 80s, um, African-American patients and white patients uh, were seen much the same. Excellent. I love your passion on the subject, Mark. I really do. So the U.S. Supreme Court's 1999 landmark Olmstead decision would come a decade later. So was DMH's decision to expand community mental health and downsize hospitals in any way ahead of the curve? Well, ironically, it was because the Olmstead decision, which is based on the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990, didn't just say that uh, hospitals shouldn't keep, you know, the the phrase least restrictive of care, least restrictive uh, setting for care. That that phrase had been used all the way back to the 50s, and and Olmstead went beyond that. Olmstead wasn't just saying that pa patients who were being cared for by the state deserved the least restrictive setting. They were saying that the state had an affirmative obligation to ensure that if a patient was take, you know, was able to live in, in a community setting, that the state had to make sure those there were supports available to that patient in the community setting so that they could live there successfully. And as I've already described with the towards local care movement, that was a lesson that not all states were following. Um, that was a lesson that South Carolina, maybe because we, you know, the state had been slower to uh, embrace uh, massive deinstitutionalization, uh, the state learned the lesson that patients who were, who were uh, impaired by a mental illness to the point that they had been uh, long-term patients of the state hospital needed more than just quali being qualified for SSI. They needed more than just being qualified uh, for Medicaid, and they needed more than just living in the same town as a community mental health center. They needed, in many cases, uh, case management supports and possibly outreach assistance uh, to actually uh, engage in treatment and engage in treatment successfully. And they needed possibly assistance in identifying uh, housing and, or a residential setting in which they were gonna get the type of supports uh, that they would need in order to make sure they were 
taking their medicine in order to make sure they were make, making it to their appointments in order to make sure that they were engaged in some activities that would keep them uh, healthy and not engaging in other activities such as uh, substance abuse um, that would make them unhealthy. So um, with the Towards Local Care Program and the attention, both the money and the attention for management on making sure that patients got connected to the right kind of supports as well as treatment um, that South Carolina embraced in the early 1990s, essentially we anticipated uh, the Olmstead decision in a lot of ways uh, by having those kinds of things that Olmstead later required of all states, we had those in place in the early 90s. So the, I always try to give some key takeaways. So DMH continued its trend of being a national leader by codifying patient laws in 1975 for all patients, which included patients of color, they created patient right positions, advocacy positions, and um, my understanding is um, DMH hosted the first national conference in South Carolina for patients um, for patient uh, rights. Um, Mark, you gave us so much to think about in what you were saying. Was there anything else that you wanted to list as a key takeaway from today? No, I think, again, um, not all of our history uh, has, has been something you could look back on proudly, but remarkably over the years, um, in just about every major uh, advance, I would say, in uh, mental health care, including community mental health care, um, South Carolina tended to be ahead of its time. I definitely am coming to agree so sadly, next week is our last week of this series, where we will, as Mark stated early, talk about and recognize um, DMH's DEI efforts, um, both in treatment of patients and in the workforce. We'll talk a little about Dr. Otis Corbett and some other contributor, contributors in the DEI work um, to include Dr. Clyde Goodrum and some others. So stay tuned, um, please. I hope you will join us. Um, these discussions have been enlightening as well as um, eye-opening. We need to document this history. Mark talks about the writing so much. Um, you didn't say anything about it this week, Mark. That surprises me. You've spoken about it every week, but um, I'm loving the DM, uh, the. DMH history, and I thought it was very important during this month, especially Diversity Month, to make sure that we um, documented it in this recording, in these recordings. So stay tuned. April 24th is our last recording, and we hope to see you then. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, we You're will welcome, be back. Thank you. Episode 3 of A History of SCDMH, Diversity and Representation Throughout the Years, presented by the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the 
South Carolina Department of Mental Health. Thank you for listening. Music provided by Ketza. Brightness.